Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is, is a Soul Fire, Fire production. production. Good morning. Good morning. I'm glad I'm here. I know. How you been feeling? I, uh, it's either the longest case of food poisoning that I've ever had in my life, or I had something else. Yeah. Right. But I went to your LA concierge pharmacist. Yeah. came to my house and gave me a clean bill of health. Well, at least COVID clean. Well, that's all that anyone cares about. If you die from some other disease, no one cares. <laughs> and I said, I said, I assume you're negative. And you said, yeah, with a sad face. Yeah, with a sad face. And I was like, oh. So that's it. Well, I, I know it's way off topic, but all this talk about a vaccine passport that's coming around like now, and I watch it on the news and I watch the bloggers and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And very rarely does anyone ask the really pertinent question is if you have the disease, why do you need the vaccine? And if you don't get the vaccine because you don't need it, then how do you get a vaccine passport? You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Okay. Natural immunity. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you, how is that going to be? I mean, no one's talking about it. So, you know, just annoying. It's very me. annoying. Yeah. Right. It's, yeah. It's, it's, it's everything against being American, the freedom of movement and the freedom to go to venues and not discriminate against somebody because of some physical attribute that they have. Yeah. 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 It's scary. So anyway, I'm better. Uh, today's the first day that I feel like a human being. I have a very little mild headache, which I've had for days. And I never had fever chills, never lost food taste. Because you didn't have COVID. Right. <laughs> but, you know, I, you know, I stayed away from my office for like three, four days. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And from people. And I enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you had tested positive, you would have been out for a couple of weeks. Yeah. But it's amazing how much, even when you're not working and you're not, um, you're trying to stay in bed and do nothing. When you were a solo practitioner, like you or I are, mm-hmm. how involved you are every day doing stuff for your clients or your anyway. business anyway. And so I was lucky because I have three people do right now and nobody went into labor, but you, on the other hand, had some births. Yeah, it was a full moon uh, Saturday and um, I had uh, a double header on uh, Saturday night, which you know was very exciting all day long. So I had had both first time moms Um, so I had had one that had been contracting for a couple of days on and off and Hayes, her doula had gone over a couple of times to like do rebozo and curb walking and circuits and try and see if she could get, um, we assumed that it was a malposition because it was just a dysfunctional labor pattern. And, um, she worked really hard with her. And, uh, so she had been in labor and then I had another person on, um, Saturday morning who was a first time mom who started to have some show and contractions. And so I was hoping that she would also kind of, you know, take her time and and deliver the next day, but she moved a lot faster and, um, ended up delivering before the other one did. So she was only 10 minutes away. I went with my assistant, who's also a licensed midwife, Kim. And um, we had had, I called Beth and asked Beth if I really was in a pinch, if she could come and help out. And she said, yes. So I knew that if I had to completely split up, I had two teams of very competent midwives to be able to deliver. Yeah, we have a great, we have a great community here. Yeah. And people back everybody up. My, uh, you know, that's, been so rare in the 11 years that I've been doing this that I've had that as an issue. But for me, it's always a slightly bigger issue simply because mm-hmm. if I have a breach or twin where I'm legally the only one that can really be in attendance at two people at the same time, it's different. Yeah. Right. So people always ask me that when, you know, when they come into practice, I bring it up in the very, like their very first prenatal visit or their consult. And what they always, you know, and it's usually the husbands, the husbands have two, two main issues. It's like costs, and safety and mess <laughs> yeah, I haven't had mess <laughs> haven't had mess but cost and safety mm-hmm. and one of the safety questions is well, what happens if you're not available mm-hmm. yeah so in your case you could say well I've got really good backup people and really good team but it's so rare that because 
that's why we limit our that's why we limit ourselves to a reasonable number of births per month yeah i only do three to four births a month so you know to have two people going at the same time is really rare uh hayes and i were talking about hadn't the last time it had happened is when we delivered the twins and not oh yeah yeah a couple years ago and then we had somebody in melbourne with was that no i had somebody um in uh burbank at the same time and so another team of midwives went over there until we could get there she ended up um delivering the next day it wasn't really that like they weren't that close together but okay yeah i just for some reason i remember maybe it wasn't maybe it's just because she went so fast was that there was a birth in malibu where you i i think you were late or you was were you oh that was a different one yeah 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 i just think (laughs) you were you were at something else i think first Mm -hmm. she was going to the hospital right you had Mm -hmm. transport Mm -hmm. that's right no no she was planning to go to the hospital she just oh. wanted me there to, for like a labor check to see when it was the right time to go. So yeah, get, you can only get pulled in so many directions. Yeah, you can only do so much. It's like having it's like having a, one kid have a soccer match, another you know, kid piano recital at the same time. This is true. What do you do? This is true. Um, I mean, but it single was, parent, it's really hard. If you're married, at least you can. Yeah, I was a single parent. I know. <laughs> I was a single parent for most of my adulthood. No, <laughs> two. So yeah. Yeah. Um, so it was very exciting. It was like baby came out, we managed to hemorrhage. And then Kim goes, Hayes really thinks that you should come to the other delivery. And I was like, okay, I'm coming. And then I realized, well, I got to grab my equipment. So we had to like pack everything up and I have a a small tub and a big tub, the big tub. I usually bring with me to burst. Um, it stays in my car and I just bring it in when I get there. And the small tub, a lot of times I'll loan to a multi. And so I had called her earlier the day. I'm like, can you leave that tub outside just in case I need it? So I had to swing by someone else's house, get the tub and head over. Um, and Hayes was like, it, she's not going to deliver any minute. She just really needs the tub. She is just tired. And mm-hmm. she had, um, she got to the point, you know, transition where she was like, I need something different. I've been working really hard for a long time. Um, but the beauty of that delivery um was she came into care late she had done the childbirth education class with Hayes and I and they were planning a hospital delivery and then they decided that they were wanting to switch to home birth kind of at the last minute so that I'd only seen them twice and um, they decided to deliver at her parents house and her sister came back for the birth from Bali so she had to isolate for a little bit and then um, she was there and she delivered in her childhood home with her parents and her sister. It was so sweet to see the parents, her parents come into their kitchen that they, you know, had lived in for 45 years, I think they said. And um, yeah, and kiss each other and just and be like, hi, grandma. Hi, grandpa. You know, in their own home. Was it their first grandchild? It too? Was. Oh my gosh. It was so beautiful. And yesterday I did a home visit and um, the mom was just like gushing about, she's telling friends now, like you should do a home birth. Like it was one of the most beautiful things. And, and we were actually talking about the difference between, remember with last um, podcast, you read that article about the grandparents meeting or the family members meeting the through baby the through the glass. Mm-hmm. And I was saying, you know, it's so interesting, but because she was talking about what it would have been like if she had gone to the hospital and um, especially in the time of COVID. And so here we are able to um, have this really bonding family experience in contrast to how most people are delivering right now. That's so, great. Yeah. It's yeah. really beautiful. It is beautiful. Yeah, speaking of, but it was exciting. <laughs> yeah, and speaking of, uh, of beautiful things, um, you mentioned Beth being available for you. Mm-hmm. I want to give a shout out to Beth and her team because they uh, sometimes you, we've heard stories in the news lately about uh, the pieces of a woman film or some bad outcome at home and or a home birth transport or Mandy Moore couldn't have her home birth because her platelet count fell and blah blah blah. And then we have this beautiful birth with Hillary uh, Duff and Matthew. Mm-hmm. Um, people, people that, um, it's good. I mean, it's, it's no different than the birth that you went to, but it's kind of nice for our profession to have a, a birth tale that goes so well. 
Yeah, exposure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's great. Well, I'm glad you're feeling well enough to come. And I know you're going back to bed after this. <laughs> Actually, I'm going up to the horses. But oh, then, I, then I, go, well, I haven't seen him in a while. So yeah. then back to bed. Okay. Um, just to preview a little bit, we're going to talk a, today about mammalian birth. I have a talk that I give sometimes, you know, uh, home birth is not just for hippies, what mammals know and we have forgotten. Mm. And so we're going to get into that because as we start our new format here on the Birthing Instincts podcast, we want to pick a topic every, every time and sort of focus on that. But before we do, you know, Bliss is going to have her wisdom segment. I'm going to do that after. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I'm gonna, I have a, um, I have a really short and a medium sized dumb Dr. Dogma segment. So okay. we'll get to those. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just had a little bit of follow-up from last week's podcast, which was basically uh, amounted to informed consent, I think. Yeah, we did informed consent. Right. Mm -hmm. So we talked about autonomy and decision-making and respect decision-making. We talked about how, as a practitioner, we have to feel comfortable with those decisions, but our job is not to, to scare people out of their decisions. It's to give them information, let them make a decision, and then we have to decide how we want to handle that decision. Um, that is shared decision-making that is respecting each other, not coercion. Um, yeah, there's just a couple, a couple of stories that, that came out. Uh, they're not very big stories, but I, I'm, I get this feed all the time, uh, every night when I go to bed. So I, I go through them and there's a team of, um, uh, mother is suing her midwives, uh, when one of the babies in a twin birth dies at, at home, this is in Nevada. And, um, you know, they start out with the uh, call the midwife is a BBC, BBC show and pieces of a woman a Netflix movie on a woman grappling with a devastating home birth and put these titles out there. And of course, this is now we have news. That's why we need more Hillary Duff stories uh, in the world, because mm-hmm. we don't hear this as much. So this, the, the story is essentially this midwifery has been around for centuries, but is not regulated in the state of Nevada. In Clark County, a mother is suing the midwife who cared for her during her pregnancy, and both sides are sharing their versions of what happened. She said that uh, the couple chose a home birth due to concerns about going to the hospital during COVID-19, and they considered home to be their special place, all right? But it turned out they were having, they were having twins, right? But they didn't know that until, like, they had no ultrasounds. Mm-hmm. So early in April... Um, what happened was uh, early in April, the midwife began suspecting that they were twins. Because they were growing larger. Right. Mm-hmm. But the woman didn't go in and get a brief ultrasound, a limited ultrasound, until a month later. And according to that limited ultrasound, it showed that the babies were possibly monoamniotic, monochorionic twins, mm-hmm. right? which of course really is not a safe situation. It's more high risk. The, there's, the, there's about a 50% mortality rate. Mm-hmm if they are monochorionic and monoamniotic, right? Because the babies get tangled up with each other and then you have this thing called twin-twin transfusion syndrome, which we have talked about on previous podcasts. Um, but, the, uh, so the, but the lawsuit is, uh, alleges that the patient then anticipated having to register at a hospital, but the midwife asserted that home birth was still an option, right? The midwives contradict that, but you get two sides of the story. Mm-hmm. So the reporter asked the, 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 the woman, she, they said, had you seen an OBGYN at all? And she said, no. And the midwives then described the patient as being resistant to take her advice. Mm-hmm. The attorneys say that there is still no confirmation that twins shared the same sac. So she could, because the m- mom never, uh, she refused to get a diagnostic ultrasound. So what I'm saying about informed consent is she has the right to refuse to get a diagnostic ultrasound but then don't hold their midwife responsible. But yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then where, where does personal responsibility come into this? Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So again, in these news articles, we're only getting a fraction of the story. So it's right. really not fair to make judgments on it, but we can make generalizations about how we in the birthing world should react to something like this. All right. They suggested she get a detailed ultrasound. She refused to get a detailed ultrasound. They were concerned. But apparently they weren't concerned enough to say, listen, hey, I can't care for you. I can't do this Mm -hmm. because apparently because Nevada is an an unregulated state, midwives can do twins Mm -hmm. in Nevada. As a matter of fact, I know some midwives who live in the high desert here in California, who when they have a twin pregnancy, they often will go go across the border Mm -hmm. and take the patient. They'll get a hotel room or Mm an Airbnb and they'll 
do the delivery in Nevada, which mm-hmm. isn't obviously ideal. Ideally would be to have California fix its laws, but right. that's not going to happen. So um, the patient was re- resistant to getting an ultrasound throughout the pregnancy, even after her recommendation starting at 20 weeks. So the reporter asked, shouldn't she have delivered at the hospital? And the, and the midwife answers to the reporter, well, I guess that would not be my decision. Um, you're talking about removing parental choices. Right. She says, respecting bodily autonomy is a major midwifery principle. Yes. So that was probably news to the reporter. Mm-hmm. Um, the patient chose to deliver with a midwife over an MD, despite knowing all this anyway. Right. So anyway, the long story, uh, the short, the, the summary of the story <laughs> is that here's a question where you're honoring informed consent. People make their choices. It sounds like she was given information. She refused to get further information by going to see uh, MFM for a detailed ultrasound. She has a bad outcome, and then she's blaming somebody else for the bad outcome. Now, if there, if there was negligence at the delivery, that's a different story, and it's not mentioned in the article. Right. But it's a real dilemma. It shouldn't be a dilemma. It shouldn't be a dilemma. It shouldn't be a dilemma. It should be... We give you information. You're an adult making your own choices. I'm here as someone who's supporting you in your decisions. Life is life. Babies sometimes make it, sometimes don't in the animal kingdom, which is great that we're going to be talking about birth today. But, um, you know, nothing is guaranteed and you can't control every scenario. But if you look at how our culture response to anything. I mean, if you just look at the fear from COVID and wanting to totally control this virus and take this low statistic down to almost nothing and take the, take the injection, you know, this is all, it's all how our culture doesn't feel comfortable with death, you know, and it just, it happens sometimes. She's very wise. My, my sidekick. Anyway, so the, so the patient, at the, the patient at the end says that she believes that the um, that midwives should be regulated in Nevada. Okay? Mm-hmm. So if they regulate midwives in Nevada, my question, the question would be, they're going to take away the ability of midwives to do twins in Nevada. So I, I wrote, well, they will. Mm-hmm. They, of course they will. So I wrote down the question for this, for this mother, what sort of care would you have expected or tolerated in a medical system if midwifery was not an option? You were refusing to do simple requests by the midwife. I'm not blaming you for that. That's your uh, beliefs and your prerogative. But if you were having a hard time with, or in any way, shape, or form in that system, what would have happened to you if you were forced to go to the hospital because of a law in your state? Mm-hmm. And how, how many would other you, women? And, and how would you have liked that? Right. Right. Okay. No personal responsibility, I think, is basically what your the main point is. And the conflict between the two. Between yeah. personal responsibility and, and uh, autonomy and decision making. Yeah. Okay. Next is a quick a quick uh, study that came out of Australia, which is called the experiences of privately practicing midwives in Australia who have been reported to the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency, which I suspect is like their nursing board. Or mm-hmm. whatever. Okay. So in Australia, the majority of home births are attended by privately practicing midwives. In recent years, privacy pr- privately practicing midwives. <laughs> have been increasingly reported to the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency, mostly by other health professionals, Mm -hmm. which is what we see here too. Mm -hmm. Not the clients that are complaining. It's the hospitals and the nurses and the doctors at those institutions. So um, the study was a qualitative interpretation employing in-depth interviews with eight midwives. So my first question when I saw this and I read that line was, how does this make the news? <laughs> All right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I did a paper with 60 home breaches and 109 home cephalic births. I didn't get anybody coming to interview me. <laughs> 60, let's see, 60 over eight. That's like seven, over seven and a half times more people in my, my paper. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so they had eight midwives. And what they did was that during data analysis, an overarching theme emerged. Uh, that that they are that midwives are caught between women and the system. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. There were six themes that came out from the eight from the eight midwives. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that, that's not an end number that that is statistic can't reach statistical significance, but it's still interesting. 
that six themes were one, the suppression of midwifery, two, a flawed system, boom, three, lack of support, four, devastation on many levels, five, making changes in the aftermath, and six, walking a tightrope forever after. Midwives who are under investigation suffer from emotional and psychological distress. Yeah. And they concluded it is becoming increasingly difficult for private practice midwives to support the wishes and needs of individual women and also meet the requirements of regulators as well as increasingly risk-averse health service. Right. Down with patriarchy is what I say. That's why we're having a hard time. That's why women aren't having the choices to be able to make their own decisions and, and a profession quote unquote, like midwifery is, um, it, it doesn't fit into this system because it's based on how a man would create a system. And so it's not looking out for what we need. Yep. yep. And it's why, and it's why me being exposed to a lot of the midwives in Southern, all over the country, actually, I'm getting questions almost on a daily basis, pretty much on a daily basis. Um, I hear, I can hear the anxiety in their voices. I can hear that this is something they would be more than happy to take care of, but they're worried that they're going to get in trouble. They're going to get in trouble. Yeah, mm-hmm. I get it. Right. I get it. Okay. Do you want me to read our, our letters before yeah, we read our, letters. our topic? Yeah. Then I have a little bit of media, which I can talk about probably after okay. um, some two media announcements, which I'd like to talk about. So that's good. Okay. Um, so we were laughing because, you know, I often am reading, um, the ratings, the reviews, which please review <laughs> us because it helps other people find us. Um, but I saw this one and I was like, uh oh, I think we might have gotten a bad review because it says, How is this guy a doctor? Exclamation question mark. But multiple exclamation yeah, question marks. But it's a five star review. So then I got it. It's, How is this guy a doctor? Because he's so awesome. That was. Oh what it is. I know, but when she first read it to me, I, I got I got a little twist in my stomach, but then I saw that it was a five-star review. I was like, so. I'm so confused. So Camden 808, uh, thanks for your five-star review. We so appreciate it. Yeah, how is this guy a doctor? I mean, look at <laughs> if people have their way, I wouldn't be probably. Well, I'm glad you are. Yeah, me too. I'm glad you are. Me too. Midwife and a doctor. So we have a couple of uh, lovely um feedback from some listeners um, of how we impacted their pregnancy. And one ended up delivering at home and the other one ended up having a hospital birth. So I thought I would read them. So Lindsay Beck says, you and Dr. Stu honestly made such an impact on me over the last couple of years of listening to your podcast. The amount of information and confidence it gave me to navigate this birth was incredible. I advocated for myself so well that even though my home birth plans turned into a hospital birth, a premature, premature rupture of membranes at 36 weeks after an elevated bile acid level and extreme itchiness, which indicates cholestasis, um, I was able to have a hospital birth on hands and knees, no epidural and, and being bring, I think she meant to say, my own baby up to my belly, short cord problems, LOL. While the OB stood back and observed and my midwife was by my side as my doula. My first hospital birth, um, though not awful, was traumatizing in ways. And there is something so sweet about this healing hospital birth at the exact same hospital to bring it all full circle. It was meant to be 100%. So she said, we really made a difference. So thanks, Lindsay, for letting us know. We really love to hear from. Yeah, and I like the fact that, um, you know, the the thing is that the baby knew that it needed to come out. Yeah, that's why. She broke her back Mm -hmm. waters. And Mm -hmm. if they didn't have a 36-week rule, she could have had the baby, 37-week rule, I mean. Yeah, maybe the midwife didn't feel comfortable supporting um, someone with cholestasis out of the hospital because it is a, it is a, uh, for you, I know you feel a little more comfortable, but for the midwife, she might've felt like that would be something. Well, but but with 36 weeks, you couldn't have done it anyway. Right. This was California. Right. 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 That's what I'm saying. it was 36 and six. (laughs) 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 No, I'm just saying that, that cholestasis doesn't really affect labor. Yeah. It's not like cholestasis is going to turn into an eclamptic seizure, that they're not related. Right. So the treatment for cholestasis is labor. Yes. So that, that really shouldn't be something that we as practitioners, if, it, if it's diagnosed and they need to be delivered and they're within the scope of practice, they should stay. There's no reason they need to go to the hospital for that. I, I hear you. Okay. Yeah. 
Um, and then we got another one from Becky Bard, yep. um, which came, uh, her baby was born at the beginning of March, but, um, I, I wanted to read this one too. She says, Dr. Stu, I just wanted to say thank you for being such an inspiration for myself during pregnancy and my labor. Listening to you over the past few months and learning about true informed consent played a huge role in my experience. I had your podcast going during early labor, which I think is so great. Um, and it was a great reminder that we have choices and deserve respect in the way we feel it's best to birth. Again, it's been an honor to follow along with you and Bliss as you support families going through one of the most transformative and empowering journeys they'll have. Thank you for keeping the passion and advocate for advocacy going. You are both rock stars. I wonder which podcast she had going. I know. <laughs> tell us, Becky. Becky, if you hear this podcast, just tell us which one you had going. I think that's so great. You know, some people listen to hypnobirthing and then others listen to informed consent podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> so some new stuff, and then we really well, anything get to that our topic. Any, anything that gets you charged with endorphins and oxytocin. That's true. So things that make you feel good. I mean, some people love a good classical music, or yeah. and other people love making out, and other people love listening to Bliss and Doctor <laughs> Stu on their podcast. Our banter, our silly banter. All right. Well, I got other stuff, but let's let's make sure there's time for our topic today because I could talk about this topic forever. Which one? Mammalian birth? Mammalian. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So we have forgotten in the medical model yeah. that human females are what? Mammal. Shocking. Animals. Shocking. Right. We are. We're mammals. All right. <laughs> and it gets, in, you know, it starts off. I, I have this talk that I do, and I haven't done one, obviously, a live talk in a, in a while. But I have this talk that I do uh, called Home Birth is Not for Hippies. It's not just for hippies, what mammals know and we've forgotten. And it starts out with the, the famous Monty Python birthing room sketch. I don't know if you've, any of you've seen that. If you haven't, you have to go to YouTube. And it's pretty funny. Putting Monty Python hospital sketch or birthing sketch, and it'll come up. And the fam most famous line in there is, is the, the, the woman says, doctor, I think the baby is coming. What do I do? And John Cleese, who plays the doctor, says, nothing, dear. You're not qualified. And what would I say? Do whatever your body tells you to do. Yeah, you know exactly what to do. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I'm right here with you. Right. Totally different perspective. I know. Mm -hmm. Right. Isn't that interesting? Well, we should. We, maybe we should do our own mock of the Monty Python sketch. <laughs> we should. That would be funny. <laughs> it would be funny. <laughs> the midwifery version of the Monty Python hospital sketch. Exactly. Oh my God, that would that would actually be quite that would actually be quite funny. It would be funny. Maybe. We could do it right. <laughs> Where are we going to get stirrups, though? Oh, we'll figure it okay, out. All right, never mind. Uh, yeah, I mean, some offices still have stirrups. Mm -hmm. Mine doesn't. I know. Because I work with midwives. So <laughs> they won't let me have stirrups. Ban, ban stirrups. Yes. Okay. I, got, I got a new colposcope. Yeah, we talked about that on the podcast. Did we? Mm -hmm. I can't remember. <laughs> my, my brain is still. Oh, mammalian bird. Okay. To the topic. All right. All right. So, I've given this talk a few times to residents. Uh, I've been lucky at, uh, to talk to residents here in Southern California a couple of times. And every time I give this talk, I get stares, open mouths, yeah. questions. Like they've never heard anyone speak like this before. So this is sort of how it goes. I say to them initially, I say, when a mammal prepares to give birth, where do they go? And there's usually silence in the room. They'll go. And I'll go. Will they go to a quiet place, mm -hmm. right? The cat, they'll go in the closet. Horse will go in the barn. A deer will go in the shrubbery or bushes or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, they'll go where they feel safe. safe mm -hmm. Okay. And then I also ask the next question, well, then, and who goes with them? And they'll think that somebody will raise their hand and go, nobody? <laughs> nobody. That's right. Nobody. <laughs> right. So she goes off to a quiet place. And, and, and nobody goes with her because optimum mammalian birth requires certain things. As Sarah Buckley likes to say, mammalian birth should be quiet, safe, and unobserved. So they go off to a quiet place, they go where it's safe, they feel safe, and where they're not being observed. The other cows don't come over and check on the, on the cow that's in labor and ask her if she's doing okay or if she needs anything. <laughs> Take her blood pressure. They, don't, they leave her alone. 
uh, they, uh, a mammal when it's laboring needs to be able to move around. They need to be able to lie down. They need to rest. They need to pace. They, if they're uncomfortable, they can roll. They can stand up. They can lie down. They can they can uh, walk or sway or do whatever they need to do to make themselves comfortable. Then there's this novel thing about when they're thirsty, what do they do? Drink. They drink. Yeah. If they're hungry, what do they do? Eat. They eat. Right. Okay. So able to drink if thirsty, able to eat if hungry. They need to be undisturbed because we'll talk a little in a second about what happens when you disturb the higher functioning brain because labor is a primitive brain function. Like breathing, like digestion, labor is something that will happen whether you want it to or not. And the only thing your higher brain can do is to screw it up. Right. Okay. It's like breathing or digestion. So we don't have to think about breathing or digestion unless you have the stomach flu <laughs> and, and then you do. But we don't have to think about eating or digestion, um, breathing or digestion, because it happens normally. But when we do think about it, like say we have to give a speech or say we have to, uh, we're, we're going to give a deposition or something like that. Suddenly we're having stomach cramps or hyperventilating and we're screwing up our normal primitive brain functions. And that's your higher brain, your neocortex doing that. Babies in the nature are born into a natural environment. Okay, It's not a sterile field. Nobody preps the, uh, the mammals' parts with iodine. No, sometimes uh, they lick them. They fall, they fall into the dirt, all right, or, the, or into the hay or whatever. It's not a sterile field, all right? Uh, a, a baby is never separated from its mother yeah. in, in nature. Right. No one rushes in to cut the cord, and no one ever takes that baby over to a warmer or whatever and separates it from the mother. There's uninterrupted skin-to-skin -skin bonding. That's how mammals give birth. And the mother has instincts. So she does things like, you've seen that elephant birth, right? Where the- She kicks it. Yeah, she yeah. kicks the baby to like get it to, to come into its body. So um, we read um, Morningstar, Sister Morningstar's letter a while ago. And one of the things she talks about is like the, um, the way that we don't allow the mother's instincts to be part of, bringing a baby back into their body and the resuscitation process. So, yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's the more I learned about this, and this is not something that I ever learned anywhere in my, all my years of medical training. Mm -hmm. This is something I picked up from midwives and picked up from a little bit of, of wisdom from multiple different midwives to put this whole thing together. And it made really sense to me. And then I brought in the medical part of it such as what happens when a mammal is laboring and a predator approaches. They get up and run away. So they well, they put out adrenaline. Yeah, and the fight or flight. Adrenaline is your fight or flight re mm -hmm. uh, reflex. And generally, if it's a pregnant mammal, they're not going to fight. They're going to yeah. hightail it out of there. So mm -hmm. when a mammal is frightened, upset, interrupted, uh, loud noises, under stress, they're going to put out adrenaline. Adrenaline is going to cause their labor to stop or at least become dysfunctional and allow them the opportunity then to get up and run. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's the, 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 again, that's the neocortex taking over for the primitive brain right. and putting out adrenaline. And so the mammal runs and only and only when it's once again safe, will the contractions return, which is an amazing thing when you think about it. Yeah, I mean, nature is brilliant. There are there are there are wonderful nature shots of you can see a deer running with the feet, the fawn partly out of her vagina, mm -hmm. and she's up running, and she will not give birth to that fawn until it's safe to do so because otherwise it, it would have uh, nature in this way ensures its best chance of, of survival. Correct, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. But we do something totally different, and so. We, what we do when we do, the, uh, when we do labor is pretty much antithetical to everything I just described. Yeah. From the moment you get in your, your, your car to leave your nest, all right, and you drive to the hospital and you're asked to fill out some forms in triage and sign some consent forms about surgery or death or go pee in a cup and put on a hospital gown or lie in bed and get an IV started and get some belts put on your belly. Um, Beeping machines. Being told that if you're lucky, you can have some ice chips or a popsicle. Being asked all kinds of questions about things that don't really matter at that point, like how many stairs do you have in your house or what did your grandmother die from? And these are the same questions that hospitals have 
that if you're coming in with a ruptured appendix or a broken leg, they'd be asking you all the same questions because they don't consider a woman coming into labor to be any different than someone with appendicitis or a broken leg. So they're asking all these questions. They're immobilizing you. Mm-hmm. They're not allowing you to eat. They, you're being, you have your, in the old days, this is before COVID, you may have had your husband, your mother, maybe your sister sitting in chairs, staring at you. Um, you have a little monitor going next to you going boom, 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 boom. And, and maybe you lose the signal and everybody's nervous and people come running in the room because the signal disappears. Or you hear the loudspeaker outside going, code C in the emergency room, code C, that sort of thing. And, and, and we wonder why people who are contracting, we don't wonder. I mean, it's a rhetorical we. But um, you're contracting every three minutes at home. Your doctor tells you to come to the hospital. You get to the hospital, you go through all this, you're on the monitor, now your contractions are eight minutes apart. Yeah, give a dysfunctional labor pattern. But you know, you're here and you're three centimeters because you had an unnecessary vaginal exam. Right. Mm-hmm. And you know, we could just break your bag of waters and get things moving. It's like, no, 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 no. Just send her home. Send her home. Okay. Don't don't do these things to them. But or that's give you Pitocin. But that or give you Pitocin mm-hmm. or whatever. But we're gonna admit you. And you know, because now you're here. And something could happen and we, there's something on the heart rate or whatever. You've been with your baby for nine months and baby does what it does. But now once you're on our turf, you're our responsibility. Yeah. If we send you home, we're responsible. So, you, so you're adding levels and levels and levels of stress. All right. And then sometimes you get people that are very supportive of you. And sometimes you get nurses or doctors who are not supportive of you and, you know, like are telling you what you can and cannot do. Um, you know, peeing in a cup or even if you can't pee, then... You have to pee on a bedpan because we have to have you on the monitor. No, no, no. You can't no. get up. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we end up with we end up with a model where we have everything that's being done from the moment you got in your car to the moment you put your baby in the car seat to drive home is antithetical to everything we described in the first thing. Let's talk a little bit about what hospital birth looks like, okay? Um, but can I say something about that? Of course. Yeah. And even though you're outside of the hospital, doesn't mean that there's not lots of things that can still interrupt that process. So as midwives, we still have to be very respectful of anything that we do that's outside of a woman delivering completely by herself, just like the cat or the cow would. All of it is an interruption to her process. And it's all an intervention. And all interventions have a ripple effect. So anytime that we listen, Anytime that we direct her in what to do, when we bring in more people, when we have students, when we do vaginal exams, these are all also interventions that we need to be really, really respectful of. Because I truly believe that when the model is left on its own, we have safer outcomes. And when we step in and intervene in the process, unless it's indicated, you know, because we're there to watch and see Truly, not if we're afraid as the provider, but whether there's actually something that's indicated that we're just really respectful of that because it's not just the hospital that interferes with the process. No, but it's also it's also the pro- the whole prenatal care system where you're educating people about the process as well, which doesn't really happen in the medical world. The medical world abdicates its responsibility for that by saying, "Oh, did you take a prenatal class?" Oh yeah. Okay. You take, you know, the hospital gave a prenatal class. So you've taken the hospital prenatal class. So now that's all that you need to know about giving birth is what you learned in the prenatal class. Which is really about being a good patient. If it's a hospital prenatal class, but they don't talk about what you just said, walking in the room and maybe not talking loudly or flipping the lights on. Yeah. 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 Right. Or yeah, just if you're going to do something, you know, you want to try to wait till it's a moment that seems appropriate to do it or to ask permission quietly to do it. Use it, you know, that's a part of the reason that, that when we talk in, we talk about when we come to your house, we'll just come quietly in the door. Mm-hmm. One of us will come up and just come in the room and listen to you. And then the rest of us will slowly quietly downstairs be setting up our stuff. And because we're trying not to Interrupt. make, make an, uh, a big production out of it or, or make a big entrance. Mm-hmm. It's not about that. Right. And of course, you know, in the old days, not this is not anymore, but I have a I have a slide that I show where you have, you know, 12 people sitting in the waiting room. Mm-hmm. Now, if a woman is laboring and she knows that there are 12 people in the waiting room or even even 12 people downstairs in the house. Yeah. 
Wait a minute, that's not good. It's, right. it's not good. It it's really on. often important to be able to tell those people, we'll call you when we need you or, or send them away or have them go get pizza or do something. Because when, when you know that there's somewhere downstairs and people are hovering and you know your mother is a worry wart or your mother-in-law or your, or your father-in-law didn't want you to have a home birth. And then you're, you're you know, you, it just interferes with that, that, neo, that neocortex primitive brain whole system. And if we remember, if we remember that nature has a design, there's a purpose in why nature does things the way they do it. And every time never fails, as you said, ripple effects before, but it never fails. Every time you mess with mother nature, there are consequences to it. Yeah. Some are okay. Some are better. All right. If somebody has strep throat and you give them penicillin, that may be better than them having, getting, ending up with rheumatic fever and having, uh, you know, dying at a young age from heart disease or something. But, but that's not what we're talking about here. Right. This is a normal physiologic process. Right. So the, the medicalized hospital model doesn't offer you the options that you often need. And one of the, one of the next podcasts that we do, maybe, I don't know which one mm-hmm. I'm going to talk about my whole, epi- my whole epidural theory. Yeah. But I'll just briefly say that when you are restricted in movement, as you are in the hospital, because you must be monitored or you must be in bed because that's how people labor in the hospital. They don't labor upright or on all fours on the floor in the bathroom or whatever. They don't do that because, because somebody isn't comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. Somebody, some non-essential, talk about non-essential personnel. <laughs> all right. There's only one essential personnel really there. And, and, and whatever she's comfortable with should be something that should be a reasonable option um, for that hospital. They should be able to have flexible policies that handle that sort of thing. But anyway, when you immobilize somebody, they can't deal with pain in the normal fashion. And so what are they going to request? They're going to request fentanyl or they're going to request an epidural. Mm-hmm. So you're stuck with that. You also um, labor when you're, when you are stressing a person or scaring a woman in labor and her contractions have spaced out, you're much more likely to go to interventions like rupturing membranes or pitocin. Um, and these things lead to that whole cascade of interventions, which you might want to just mention for, for new listeners. What is the cascade of interventions? Well, I mean, when birth is left alone, as we've been talking about, um, then we don't really see babies going from being great to not great. But what happens when you interfere with the process, then a lot of times you need, whether it starts off with, we need to get your labor moving, whether that's an induction or, um, you know, a dysfunctional labor pattern, as you described coming into the hospital. So then you get introduced with Pitocin and now you have contractions that are not normal. They are coming close together and they're a lot stronger because it's, it's a synthetic form of oxytocin. Then a woman is requesting an epidural or the other way around, they've been immobilized and they're not coping well with labor. And so they get the epidural and then the the contractions space out and then they end up getting an epidural and just like one leads to another, to another. And then often what happens is that the baby or the mom system, because of all of these medications that now have been introduced into their system, um, have effects. So we have blood pressure issues, um, babies having heart rate issues, and then we end up in the, the surgery room. Right. And baby, yeah. and, and the, and again, without just a teaser about my epidural theory is that, you know, when the, when the mother's uncomfortable, the mother's putting out certain neurotransmitters to help her deal with that those neurotransmitters are crossing the placenta and the baby's getting a, a, a sense of them. When the mother is suddenly numb and not feeling anything anymore, the baby is still getting squeezed every two to three minutes and it's essentially disconnected from its mom. And it's much more likely to then. Yeah. Yeah. Go downhill. And so we think, Oh, thank God that we had surgery room right down the hall. <laughs> but if we had never interfered with the process, in the beginning, we probably wouldn't have needed any of those things. So that's the ripple effect and right. the cascade of intervention. Right. When, when that's one of those things when dads ask me, well, you know, what if you need an emergency C-section? And I go, it's really, really rare in the home setting to see that rapid deterioration that you just described. Yeah, so uh, you, rare. You don't, you don't see it. You can see it and it is rare. And occasionally there is a problem, but it's so rare yeah. compared to the hospitals where you end up with newborn intensive care units that are often crowded with term babies, not preemies, but you know, 3,000, 4,000 grand babies who all came into the hospital, not in distress. And somehow they're being observed in the NICU now. 
How did that happen? Yeah, you, you know, you're forced to push in lithotomy position so often in the hospital. Uh, they make it a sterile procedure. Uh, the idea of prepping a woman's vulva with betadine and putting sterile drapes on her legs and abdomen for and, uh, and the doctor, if it's for his own protection or her own protection, that's fine. But the idea that you're wearing a full hazmat suit to catch a baby, I think I have this picture, <laughs> not here. I think I have this picture here, which Bruce, we, we can laugh at. I, when I show this picture, which is a doctor holding a baby and two nurses standing, everyone's fully garbed. Uh, the mother is completely uh, draped in blue uh, drapes. And I asked the audience, they said, so what's wrong with this picture? And it's, all, it's almost like, you know, finding the hidden pictures in Highlights magazine. Yeah. All right. How many things can you find in this picture that are wrong? All right. My first question, my first response is, why is the doctor still holding the baby? Yeah, exactly. Right. That, that's the first thing I would say right. to you. Okay. So, um, so we get to that. Uh, there's this whole question of delayed cord clamping. You know, how long is too long? ACOG has a one minute guideline. I think that that's been changed or changing. There's really no evidence that, that um, leaving it pulsate till the, till the placenta separates causes babies to have too much blood or too little blood. Or We can do a whole episode on that. But if you just think about it, like why would, the, why would nature design something that needed to be interrupted by science? This is just common sense, which is one of the foundations of our podcast. Like, just think about it. We've been delivering babies since the beginning of time. Nature has a purpose to everything that it does. Mm -hmm. And there, there's no way that every single baby needs to have that process interfered with. Um, it just doesn't make sense. It's not pathologic. It's physiologic. Yeah. So. I still remember my training in medical school back in Minnesota or at my residency where every baby I was completely dressed in a hazmat suit. The baby sat on my left arm because I'm right-handed. I would take a clamp from the table, a clamp from the table. I'd cut the cord or I'd hand the scissors to the dad, cut the cord. I'd show the mom the baby, and then I'd walk the baby over to the warmer. Yeah. And this is how we did it. Yeah. And when you, when you ask in, at some of these events, some of the nurses in labor and delivery come, and I ask the resident, so why does the baby need to go to the warmer? And the answer is always, well, the baby has to, we have to check the baby out. Well, why? And it's it's it gets back to my one of my favorite quotes from Thomas Paine. It's called the it says the long habit of not thinking something wrong gives it the superficial impression of being right. Mm -hmm. And we've been doing certain things in a pattern for so long, you don't stop to think, why am I doing this? Why are we doing it? Why is the baby going over to the warmer? Why does the baby need to be dried off? Why does the baby need to get some sort of exam or vaccine or vitamin K before it can be bombed? with mom why is the baby being swaddled and then handed to mom mm -hmm. and and if we go back to the to the mammalian physiologic birth model the intention of nature is for the cord to continue to stay attached so that the baby can continue to get the blood to be placed on mom for mom to be able to smell the baby and the baby to be able to smell its mom to complete that circuit so that the baby's little feet on the tummy start to help the placenta separate. Maybe even suckling at the breast can help that process. The placenta comes out. It's done with its job. The uterus starts to clamp down and the baby and mom being together, mom regulating the temperature for the baby and holding and loving the baby helps that baby transition better. And then the baby helping the mom clamp down so that there's less bleeding. And when that is interfered with, again, I'm going, I'm talking to other attendees who do home births. When you interfere with that process, you bring new people in the room, people start to get on the phone, you're, you're um, interfering with the bonding process in whatever way you might be doing that, listening to the baby's heart rate. If you're concerned, I get it. But if you're just doing it because it's a box to check, really check yourself and think about like, how am I interfering with this process? Because we're still waiting for the placenta to come and the bleeding to be managed. And so if you're interfering with that process, you could potentially be causing more bleeding than than it would right. happen. Maybe 10, 15% of the time you need to interfere and the other, other mm -hmm. times that you don't. Right. Somebody's starting to bleed a lot and the placenta hasn't separated, then you might have to be right. called to action. But otherwise you don't. The other thing that in, in, in that wonderful list that you just gave, the other thing that, that's very important too is the microbiome, yeah. which of course, you know, that you get not only you get it from the vaginal birth, even with a beta dyne washed vulva, mm -hmm. but 
the skin to skin is also extremely important for that. And so when you take the baby over to the warmer and you wipe it off, you wipe off the vernix, you wipe off Mm -hmm. the mom's uh, vaginal secretions. And what are you doing? Why are you doing that? What's what's necessary? It's not a sterile procedure. I got to reiterate that again. Childbirth vaginally is not a sterile procedure. Hospitals cannot differ. They forget to differentiate the fact that you know, when they do a procedure in the hospital, they've got to do sterile field and beta iron prep and all that because they're invading the skin or they're invading the abdominal wall or they're invading something. That's true. But this is not that. And they, but they, they glom them all together. Yeah. Cause there's no respect to that. And the long-term consequences of what they're doing, as you said, are never really considered. The, the idea is we've got a baby that is crying in the warmer. It's all, and the placenta's out. It's all good. It's like, no, there's a lot more to it than that. Not taught in the medical model, not taught at all. So where has it taken us? Okay. So by around 1920, 99% of babies were born at home in the United States. Mm -hmm. By 1940 or 50, 99% were born in the hospital. So in a matter of 20 to 30 years, the medical model took over birthing from the traditional midwives that had been always dealing with birth at that point. So and we know, women, and just taking it out of well, women's hands, really. Yeah, they yeah. made it. They made it into this thing. They thought, you know, they were probably paternalistic. I won't go into them whether they're misogynistic or not, but mm-hmm. they were paternalistic. They may have thought initially that that, that they know better, like like John Cleese. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, <laughs> the parodies that those guys did, by the way, the Monty Python guys. If you watch their whole show, I mean, I went to college with that show that got me through studying for MCATs and stuff was watching Monty Python. So anyway, we now have three generations or more, now probably four or five of American women who have no experience with natural birth. None. Women have been indoctrinated to fear birth and abdicate its process to physicians who I would say are the, are the propagators of the fear, right? They, they are the ones that fear birth and they projected their fear onto the women of our country. And I say that You've heard me say, you know, you and I've heard these other things a lot, but I say that because if you go to a, a, a community like the Amish community where they, you know, they don't have doctors, they just deal with midwives and stuff, and they may even know someone who's died in childbirth. I think that most pregnant women in the Amish community do not fear birth. They honor it. They cherish it. They look yeah. forward to it. Yeah. The same thing goes with third world countries like, you know, Central America, those countries, they come here, they have much less fear of birth than the average person who, who, uh, you know, lives in a major city in the United States, who goes to a regular OB. Um, 1970, the C-section rate in the United States was five and a half percent. And by 19, by 2019, the rate is about 32.8%. That's a 500% increase with no significant statistical difference in neonatal outcomes or uh, cerebral palsy or hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy or stillbirth. So, so what happened to our ability to birth as nature intended in just one generation? Okay. And um, it's, it's easy to see if you take a step back and look at it, that the medical model has not served as well. Right. Yet they control everything. And, and we're still choosing that, or most women are still choosing that as an option. Yeah. Here's a, a quote from our old friend and colleague, Ida May. This can be our midwife wisdom today because we're running out of time because this whole topic is a Midwife wisdom, yeah, anyway. <laughs> it truly is. Okay, so yeah, all right. So you want to read it then? Sure. Okay. So this is from Ina May Gaskin. Um, when you destroy midwives, you also destroy a body of knowledge that is shared by women that can't be put together by a bunch of surgeons or a bunch of male obstetricians because physiologically, birth doesn't happen the same way around surgeons, medically trained doctors, as it does around sympathetic women. Right. Yeah. Agreed, Miss Gaskin. Right. So I just, um, just in my own experience, when I used to have a, a hospital-based practice, um, we had a collaborative midwifery practice. I worked with two CNMs and me, and we were the second. There were, there were two main groups at the hot little hospital we worked at out in Camarillo. Uh, one was the Women's Place, which was my group, and one was Channel Islands OBGYN group. And in the year. Uh, from December 1st of 2007 to November 30th of 2008. So in, in a one-year period of time, we handled the same clientele. There, was, there were similar patient demographics, both low and high-risk patients, 
similar neonatal outcomes, all right? The Woman's Place was a collaborative practice of certified nurse midwives and obstetricians, all right? Channel Islands was a group of rotating obstetricians. So in that year, uh, the Woman's Place did 124 deliveries and had six primary cesarean sections. Channel Islands did 183 deliveries, so, so like 50% more, and had um, 33 primary cesarean sections, which was um, 500% more. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if, if, they should, if they had the same model, they should have had nine, and they had 33. Yeah. All right. So we had a primary C-section rate of 5.2%, and they had a primary C-section rate of 20.4%. Now, 24% might sound really good to people. And, and yeah, it was it's compared, compared to, to what's going on. Well, remember, this was 12 years ago, 13 yeah. years ago. And then overall, our C-section rate was 12% when you added in repeat C-sections. And theirs was 29.5%, which gets much more close to the national average when you added in their repeat C-section. But the only difference between these two models and the difference between a 5% primary rate and a 20% primary rate was the way we cared for our clients. Yeah. And this was a hospital model too. So these were both hospital models, yet you can do a lot of these good things in a hospital model when the hospital is small enough that it lets you do what you want to do. Yeah. What happened was this little hospital was then taken over by a bigger hospital and everything began to change. And that led us down that path into, we don't want breaches, twins, VBACs, or midwives. Which led you to to becoming who you are now. Not a bad thing. Let's see. So, um, yeah, so that's about, that's all I'll say. Um, I'd like to end that. This, I want to add something to you before well, you end. Okay, so you add, and then I'll, I'll just want to end with this. So go ahead. Okay, so. And then, the, I got, then I got other stuff to do. <laughs> the one thing you didn't talk about um, really is oxytocin. So oxytocin is the main hormone that continues to create um, powerful contractions and helps the body be able to deliver without dysfunction. So the, we talked about the adrenaline, right? When it gets interrupted, but how do you facilitate oxytocin? So facilitating oxytocin, it's light sensitive. So how do we create oxytocin? You want to say? What are things that create? We feel feel loved. We feel Mm -hmm. good. We Mm -hmm. feel affection. We are happy. Yeah. Hugs, chocolate, nipple stimulation, orgasms, sex, right? So I was just going to bring a little bit in about what we talk about in our childbirth class is that, you know, what gets the baby in gets the baby out. So anything that also facilitates connection and closeness um, with the couples, which sometimes is difficult to do in an out-of-hospital environment. It's not impossible, but it's difficult. And um, so continuing to do things like open mouth kissing, being close, maybe getting in the shower or the tub together so that you guys are in close proximity, not having a bunch of people watching you. Um, that beautiful birth that we did in Topanga, you know, they were in the tub and he so wisely, you know, she's really struggling in the tub. She talks about it now, leaned over and gave her some big, fat, yummy, open mouth smooches. And what happens is that her throat becomes really soft, which affects how her, her yoni Ina Mae Gaskin talks about that a lot. When your throat is soft, then also your vagina is soft. So that's another part of the mammalian model that I think in the hospital, it's really difficult for them to weave in because it's not how they're thinking about birth, but it is a culmination of a sexual act. Okay. The only difference between what you just said and, the, and my whole theme for today was, was talking about mammals in nature. Yeah. Two cows are not going to be <laughs> making out. Making out, okay. The, <laughs> no. the, the bulls are off doing their thing, okay. No. So, I was going to get more into that when I talked about the epi- when we do an epidural episode right. because I talk about the hormones that we make. But your point is well taken. Yeah. But it's not how nature nature doesn't bring in the the, the, because the we sexual don't interfere the love, with it. Yeah. that sort of thing. That's mm-hmm. maybe that is more maybe of a human variation on the mm-hmm. mammalian birth model but mm-hmm. anyway thanks for that so You're welcome um so we got but the thing that you that mammals need to avoid is fear yeah and stress and so this is a quote uh from actually my book um well it's not my book it's william wordsworth wrote this in the early 19th century 
but uh, it's a quote from the Fearless Pregnancy book, which we don't really talk about much anymore because it's been 11 years since the, it came out. Yeah. But I, do, I did write a book, uh, a co-authored book with uh, Victoria and Joyce. Um, but what is fear but voices airy, whispering harm where harm is not? And if you just read, read that back to yourself a couple of times, you'll, you'll, it'll make, it makes a whole lot of sense. So you need to trust your body. It's biology at work and trust your practitioner or don't settle. Mm-hmm. Remember what mammals know and we forgot. Yeah. Very important. Yeah. A couple quick media notes. Uh, Paul Thomas interviewed me on his Against the Wind podcast. So we will put in the show notes, www.doctorandscience.com backslash shows. All right. And then you want to go to, um, you'll find it where there's a, a week four highlights show. And then you can hear the interview that I have with Dr. Paul Thomas. Um, secondly, I, got, I was interviewed by an independent journalist, which I feel very comfortable talking to independent journalists. Mm-hmm. I mentioned earlier on a podcast that uh, I was interviewed by Wales TV. Mm-hmm. And I like that. I, I, I'm very skeptical of doing local news shows or things like that because they edit you down to, to nothing. But I did an interview with an independent journalist and she asked me a couple of questions. She said, um, I am currently working on an article for LifeSite News and about vaccine hesitancy among healthcare workers. Uh, an attorney from the Physicians for Informed Consent, which is a great group that I belong to, suggested me as a person who could make comment and reported data that upwards of 50% of healthcare workers are reluctant or refusing to get a COVID-19 vaccine. Very telling. She said, um, a Washington Post poll recently found that nearly half of all healthcare workers surveyed would decline a COVID-19 vaccine and one in six would quit their job before they took a shot. Um, as well, a number of recent studies have looked at the phenomenon of vaccine hesitancy among healthcare workers and found surprisingly high vaccine refusal rates. For instance, this study looks at eight polls of healthcare workers with alarming high refusal rates. A recent Harvard study of nursing home workers reported that th- only 37.5% of skilled nursing facility workers have been vaccinated and cites reasons from a healthcare workers who participated in a town hall meeting on the subject. But her question to me was, what do you think is the main reason that healthcare workers are reluctant to receive a COVID-19 vaccine? And what do you think of recent proposals and suggestions that healthcare workers be mandated to be vaccinated for their jobs? Thank you, and I look forward to your replies. (laughs) Okay, so quickly my response. I said, said, uh, Celeste, easy answers. On mandating vaccines, the same people who came up with wet sand walking is okay, but dry sand is not allowed, or two people in a boat is okay, but three is not, and I could list a hundred of these unscientific idiocies, are the same fools who will mandate vaccines. Because they have blown any credibility via their lockdown parameters to anyone paying attention, everything they say is suspect now. And that includes, I'm vaccinated and still wear two masks because something else might happen, Dr. Fauci. Mandates destroy medicine. In a country with a bill of rights, you cannot lump every individual into one basket. The essence of medical ethics implies individual autonomy in decision-making and the right of informed consent and refusal. Medical workers are well-versed in this tenet. Secondly, as for why healthcare workers are skeptical, I see several other reasons. One is they are rational and know young healthy people like most of them have low risk from the virus. Two, they likely have seen adverse reactions because of their work and can calculate and understand the risk-benefit ratio. Three, many are women of reproductive age and are wary of harming a pregnancy or a chance of becoming pregnant. Check the limited research on mRNA SARS-CoV-1 in the early 2000s on ferrets, I believe, and the vaccine's effect on the syncytiotrophoblast. Healthcare workers know this stuff, and they know how to analyze research papers and can tell quality research from marketing. And that leads to this last one, They are aware that these new vaccines haven't really had safety testing that means anything. Pretty much everyone getting a vaccine today is a human experimental subject. And experienced rational people like healthcare workers would rather let someone else be a guinea pig. I hope that is clear and useful. Please write an honest story. I respect that you are an independent journalist. Awesome. Love it. So we'll see what happens with that. Okay. Okay. And lastly, so my dumb doctor dogma today isn't about doctors or hospitals. It's about county health officials. All right, Bliss and I were doing a run to San Diego, and we stopped to get a taco. A burrito. 
Mm-hmm. Little burrito at, mm-hmm. Del, at Del Taco. Yeah. We stopped to get a taco. Yeah. And I've been to fast food places all the time. People know that I go there, although I might not be going for a while since since a Wendy's hamburger threw me, threw me in last Good. week. But but um, on the uh, soda machine, they had a sign that was posted. It says, self-service soda machine closed. Under the county health officer's order, delivery drivers and customers cannot be allowed to fill their beverages from a self-service soda machine. So... <laughs> <laughs> I pause there for effect. What possible reason could they decide, whatever county we were in, that filling a soda machine, if you can walk into the restaurant and order your food and stand in line six feet apart and order your food, how is filling a soda machine a health, a health risk? I guess because people would be touching it. Different mm-hmm. people. Whoever came in would be touching it. It's not, it wasn't one that had an electronic push button. Right. It was one where you just put your glass and push on it. What are you touching? I think it's just more chance that there could be cross contamination. You do. Well, I mean, I think that's where the the logic. More than the doorknob coming into the restaurant? No. No. Right. Yeah. More than the counter where you ordered food? No. More, More than the cash register where different people are ringing up different things? Well, we don't touch the cash. Right? No, we don't. But yeah. The healthcare workers do. Yeah. That's my bliss. Bliss is the, bliss is the level-headed one. You know, <laughs> when I'm up here, she's down here. And then when you're up here, sometimes I'm, the, I'm back down here. Yeah. Right. We're, so good, I, we're yin and yang. We are yin and yang. Yeah. A lot of times. And I think that that's fantastic. But this is, this is, this is just, this is another insanity. It's like wet sand, dry sand, or two people in a boat, three people in a boat. Yeah. Where did they sit in a room and come up with, Okay, we're going to open up the restaurants, but people can't get their own soda. Yes, they did. <laughs> and I've got clients to go see. So I love you guys. I love you. I'm glad you're feeling a little better. Kiss, yeah. Kiss the horses for me. So until next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 